I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwein, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwein, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. It's time for the Life Writing Podcast with your hosts, authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve Du. All about creating the project of your dreams while living a balanced artist life. Be the hero or heroine of your own story. Sponsored by LifeWritingPremium.com. Get ready to write for your life. Welcome to the Life Writing Podcast, where married authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve do talk about writing during stressful times, breaking into Hollywood, and balancing life. Every week, we'll share more tips on how to build a better life while you create your dream projects. Even if it's only at the rate of a sentence a day, life writing is the application of the tools of writing to life and the tools of life to your writing. And here we are. So we have a very, very exciting guest today, director Ernest Dickerson. But Yay! as yes, can't wait for that. But yeah, it, we ran into him recently at a screening of Nope, wasn't it? It was. It was right it was. after the screening of Nope. So we had a good chance to catch up. I think the last time we saw each other in person was also at the screening for Horror Noir, maybe uh-huh. back in 2019. I remember, so, I remember that. So I guess listen, I, what, what's been going on since last we spoke to our audience? Well, you brought up a very important point that we overlooked, I think, and neglected to mention in earlier podcasts was that the Afrofuturism world and Star Trek world has lost an icon in the passing of the great Nichelle Nichols, who played Lieutenant Uhura on the OG original Star Trek series. The first Black woman in space, as far as I know. I think that people have spoken about a lot of the career type things and even the significance of Martin Luther King encouraging her to stay on the show when she wanted to leave. I have a couple of, of I'd interacted with her four times. The first time I hadn't even remembered it. I, my friend Michael Ellington told me that she lived up the street from me and the house that he said she lived in. I suddenly realized that I had a story that when I was a paper boy, her dog used to come out and chase me. And oh, it, boy. It, it, it nipped my, my calf. Dog nipped my calf, and she came out of the house. All I remember was a very beautiful black lady came out of the house and apologized. And I told her, I was, I don't know, maybe 12. I told her that that dog ever came after me again, I was going to kill it, even if I had to take follow it inside the house to <gasps> do it. Oh, that's that dog, nice. 
think that dog was never outside again. <laughs> so, so mean, though. So, so, so mean. Yeah, I don't know. It's just self-protective from, you know, from my 12-year-old perspective. That's um, true. But I didn't remember. I didn't remember that. And I have to take Michael's word for that. It, it all makes sense in context. But I that was before Star Trek came on, I, I believe. So I did not recognize her. Okay. Later on, many years later, after Trek had been off the air for many years, we were both guests of honor at a convention. And I had, yeah, I actually had a fair amount of time to sit and talk with her. Uh, I had a chance to dance with her, which was really great. I bet Um, it was. I bet it was. She also was giving me some career advice that had to do with celebrity. What did she say? Well, what she said was that your fans don't really want to know who you are. That what you have to do is to create a public image, a, a simulacrum, a, something that is a reduced version of yourself, simplified version. And that's the part of you that, that you give them. They don't want to know about your aches and pains. They don't want to know about your resentments. They want you to, to sparkle, sparkle, sparkle. And that you have to be very careful about that. You create a simplified version of yourself that is not inauthentic, but it is not. it does not contain your actual weaknesses. So people cannot attack you based on it. And they're not going to be disappointed. You know, you, you have to ask, what is it that the fans want? And they want that idealized self. Okay. Interesting. It, it, I have a juxtaposition to that later. You finish your encounters and then I'll talk about my one encounter. Okay. I was on a talk show, a, a call-in talk show with her once, you know, and we did not interact very much directly. We were kind of saying things alternately. And the last time I saw her was David Gerald's 70th birthday party. Hmm. She was coming out as I was going in, and she had a couple of handlers with her. And she was a little frail, and she did not remember having met me before. I was not in the slightest bit insulted by that. She she wanted to. She was being very nice. But, you know, she meets a lot of people. That was the last time that I saw her. But I will never forget that conversation about what it is that the fans want from you. And if you're going to satisfy them and stay safe, you have to be careful. Do you remember what inspired her to give you that advice? I think that we were just talking about life. Okay. You know, in careers and things like that. And she saw me as a, as a young man who was, mo- you know, in the early stages of his career. And that she was offering me advice that she felt would be valuable. And I thought it was extremely valuable. It, it is valuable. And I'm just, I asked that question because I know how open-hearted and candid you can be. And I was wondering if you had had an encounter with a fan where they were like, hey, Steve, how you doing? And you were like... Actually, my energies are a little bit low today. <laughs> oh, no, of course. Of course I do that sometimes. But yeah. I'm very careful. I, I created what I would refer to as a, a Stevie simulacrum, you know. Okay. It's, it's it's not exactly me, but it's very similar to me. Right. It says the things that I say. It feels a lot of the ways that I feel. But in any given context, I keep some of my business to myself. I know you do. I was you just know. wondering if she had overheard you being candid and open. And she's like, oh, well, we can't have did. that. We well, cannot you know, have uh, that. <laughs> I, I don't remember clearly enough. It is, of course, always possible that that is, that that is what happened. I, but that is not my memory of it. But I cannot exclude that possibility. So my, I have one Michelle Nichols memory and one very brief exchange. I won't even call it a conversation, but it left a, a big impact on me. And I hope, I hope that it left a little bit of impact on her. Here in LA, there was something called the TV Expo. I think that was the name of it. And I only heard about it through the actress Victoria Rowell. I had done some work with her on a script and she knew I was a huge fan of Dick Van Dyke. And she was on a show with Dick Van Dyke, that that medical show that he, I can't think of the name of the show now, but she had, I had Diagnosis Murder. Diagnosis Murder, that's it. Thank you, darling. And she knew how much I wanted to meet Dick Van Dyke. So because the entire surviving Dick Van Dyke cast was going to be at this event, which included Dick Van Dyke, it included Rosemary, it included the woman who played Millie. For $200, I could have taken a picture with all of them, but I didn't have $200. I was so broke. I was so broke that weekend, but I dragged our son there. He was about eight or nine years old, dragged him there with me so that she could cut me ahead of the autographing line just to have a, a brief conversation with Dick Van Dyke, which I did. So I, in some ways, okay, boom, what does this have to do with Michelle Nichols? Well, I walked into an exhibition room 
And it was like every like star from every movie or TV show you could think of. And there was Nichelle Nichols sort of by herself, almost in a corner, sitting at this table. And there was no one like swamping her like I would have thought. She was, I was like, <gasps> I just did, is this Nichelle Nichols? <laughs> I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the whole room should have been called the Nichelle Nichols room, right? And I just went up to her and it was only $30 for a picture, thank goodness, because that I could afford. And of course, I was going to give her the money, but I, I just, I don't know, I, instead of fangirling over her, I, I just said, wow, you know, this looks like it must be tiring to sit here like this. And she just said, it's work, you know? So I feel like that was our whole exchange. There's no more to it, but I felt like it was real, you know? And that's why I say it's sort of a juxtaposition to your story, because I was not asking her to glow her other personality at me or be someone else for me. I just really wanted her to know. I just wanted her to be herself. And I wanted to speak to the real woman and I wanted to hear from the real woman. Well, does that not connect with what we said the significance of Nope was? How do you survive in this industry? You do the work. Yes. You do the work. You do the work in front of you to the very best of your ability every day, no matter how you feel, and moments of genius will emerge. The people who chase after the genius are like people who are chasing after the money as opposed to what is good work. Right. Like, where's the rainbow? Take take (laughs) care of your family. Take care of your health. Do your work. And to the very best of your ability, and from time to time, lightning will strike. Yeah, you can't grab. Will happen. Yeah, you can't grab the rainbow, but you can admire it. You know, from in the sky. But if you're going to try to go find the root of it and grab it and take it home with you, that ain't going to happen. So, is is that is that should we should we bring on our our well? Let's see. Well, we talked very very briefly about you know career things. I don't think since the last show that we did, we're still waiting for certain things to happen. Contracts have been signed. We're waiting for our agents and managers to call us and say that business affairs has business been affairs. Them. I want if I hadn't already used the boo, I would I would boo business affairs. They're so slow yeah. everywhere. But aside from that, I'm just stacking up projects and trying to get a sense of how long it's going to take to do them and how much work I have to do every day to be on track. So I've been using the Pomodoro technique, which is to, I'm using this this cube timer here for that, just set it up to do nothing but work on something for 25 minutes, no social media, no phones, no email, nothing for those 25 minutes, then take a five minute break, and then another 25 minutes to, to focus totally on that. And so it's like, I need to get five pages of rough draft done a day. If I do that, that's 25 pages a week, that's 100 pages a month, and that allows me to plan out pretty carefully how much time am I going to need to do these different projects as they come in. So, well, good for you, honey. Yeah. Good so for you. We that can you're, move on now unless you want to say working. something. No, I'm, I'm fine. I'm very excited to talk okay, to good. bring in our, our guests. Uh, like we did with our last introduction, we can share the, uh, the introduction. So I'll start. Ernest Dickerson first became known to the world as a cinematographer and, and was very well known for his frequent collaborations with Spike Lee because they were classmates at Tisch School of the Arts. They worked together on his eight, 1983 thesis film, which won a Student Academy Award. And then he jumped off eventually on his own as a director. So as a director, he's known for action and horror films such as Juice, Demon Knight, Bulletproof, Bones, and Never Die Alone. He's also directed several episodes of acclaimed television series such as Once Upon a Time, The Wire, Dexter, The Walking Dead, and Godfather of Harlem. Most recently, Bosch and DMZ. Really, you just have to say he's directed all the TV shows. I think that would be faster yeah, than reading be the, better, the, right, the list. But let's welcome to the room Ernest Dickerson. <laughs> In. And there he is. It's a long walk down that hallway. The uh, man, the myth, Everyone the complains about it. But good to see you. How are you? Hi, right, good to see you guys, too. Yeah, so this is our thing. This is our podcast. How do you like it? Yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> I was loving, you know, the talks you guys were having about the Michelle. You know, I, I had been in love with her since I first saw in high school, you know, the original Star Trek. Yes. And, you know, and uh, she was, you know, she was a pioneer. She really was. You know, it's impossible to overestimate the importance of those early, early actors and actresses, the the pressures that they had to have been under. Yeah, and the first interracial kiss on television. 
true. That first one with William Shatner, you know, and what I love to say about Nichelle Nichols in terms of her impact is when you think back to the 1960s when Star Trek aired originally and everything else that was going on, it was a civil rights movement, student protest movement. My parents were involved in. So basically you have these activists around the country, black and white, putting themselves on the line, willing to go to jail, willing to be shot at potentially be murdered to stand up for rights that uh, on some level, a lot of people were taking on faith that if we had the opportunities, we could rise up and perform. I mean, sure. People had some examples from their families. There have always been, always been black achievers, (laughs) but the idea that if you open up the workplace, we can thrive and even lead. That was, that was really sort of taking it on faith because the workplace was not open to us. So while we had the real life hidden figures, working at NASA, which no one knew. No one knew there were Black women working at NASA, helping to get us into space. That's, again, it's taking on our faith. One of the things I think you have to factor in there, it isn't just a matter of can you perform. It's because the arts are not about can you hit the ball 300 feet. It's about will the crowd cheer when you hit the ball 300 feet. Mm. You know, there isn't as much objective reality. It's very subjective. Does the audience, I remember Greg Morris, who was on Mission Impossible at the same time that Nichelle Nichols was on on Star Trek, came to our high school drama class and was talking about his experiences there and how much hate mail Desi Liu and Paramount, from the South primarily, people saying literally that Barney was, you know, that real black men were not as smart as Barney and so therefore it was a fantasy. So it, it isn't just whether or not you can get hired, it's whether or not you can get hired and get the audience behind you. Well, you know, I think that that is an additional level of complexity. Yeah. And and for me, just that impact, and we're not going to shut you out of this, Ernest, I promise, just to, to wrap it, is this notion that we had these hidden figures who were hidden, who were actually doing the real work, while she was the public face of that achievement in a futuristic fiction, right, to help inspire everyone to believe that Yes, this future is possible where you would have a black woman, a Russian, which is almost at the time would have been as unbelievable, (laughs) you know, a black woman, a Russian, a Klingon, I mean, not a Klingon, oh gosh, Vulcan, Vulcan. sorry, don't take my Star Trek card, don't take my Star Trek card, but yeah, so did you ever, the Klingon (laughs) came, (laughs) that's true, did you ever meet her, Ernest, or no, it was just, better, I never met. You know, the thing about it, though, we know her as as Uhura in in Star Trek. But, you know, she did some other amazing stuff. There's a movie she did called Truck Turner with Isaac Hayes. Right. And she is the total antithesis of what we saw as Uhuru. I mean, I it's it's a shame. Yeah, I'm glad she did what she did. But I think her range as an actress was really undersold. I think, you know, she was capable of much, much more. She was a, she was apparently an amazing singer, an amazing jazz singer. So, you know, I'm glad we got to share some of her life, but I think there was more life that she had to share with us that we never had that opportunity. True. Well, that was the whole root of it, wasn't it, with Dr. King? She she wanted more. She was like, I need to get off the show. I want to go to Broadway. I want to sing. And he was like, oh, no, girl, we need you. you <laughs> know, Maybe those I, weren't his exact words. People ask me why I look at certain indicators socially in terms of movies. And it's because I'm trying to navigate the territory of Hollywood in terms of my career. And I think that there is a gap between what people tell you the territory is and what the territory is. Now, you've had a very long and successful career, Ernest, and you've been able to navigate this game at a level of success that is quite rarefied. And I yeah. was hoping that maybe you would share with us some of your observations and thoughts and maybe even strategies and tactics for having and bef- succeeded and thrived. And while you're thinking about that for one second, I want to let our audience know what we're talking about here. Because when when we say, you know, he frequently collaborated with Spike Lee, these were those early films and kind of this Black arts renaissance that was going to usher in the 90s, right? And now we're having another Black arts renaissance. So as you look over the span of your career, yeah, talk about it. Well, gosh, yeah, I think I've been lucky. I think. Uh... I think part of it is I was in the right place at the right time. You know, I think of before I went to NYU film school, you know, I was working in medical photography at Howard University and it was a comfortable job. You know, I had a great job. I was 
sharing a house with another brother. I had a, a great bachelor's life, but uh, but I just I just I just had this dream that I was of getting into cinema, and I was already working as a as a photographer, and so I decided to apply to NYU Film School. And I think if I hadn't done it right then and there, you know, what would have, you know, what different way would my life have taken? It's, you know, I think no matter how impossible it it seems, sometimes you got to pursue your dream. You got to have a dream and you got to pursue it. And it's got to be about, I've got to do this. Not because I want to make money, you know, I mean, there are easier ways to be rich than, than undertaking a job, you know, as a filmmaker. That's for sure. Uh, yeah, the arts are a bad bet if, if what you want is financial stability. That's, you that's know, yeah. It's true. always a gamble when you do that. But but it's it's more than money and more than wanting fame. I mean, we were told by everybody in film school, Spike and me, that chances are we would never have a career. And uh, and I, I remember Spike had trouble after his first year because he almost didn't get invited back. I did have, you know, some people that came into my life at interesting places. At NYU Film School, I had the opportunity in my first year to be taught by a lady named Roberta Hodes, who was the production instructor. Now, Roberta Hodes had been a script supervisor for Ilya Kazan. She was script supervisor on On the Waterfront, Baby Facing the Crowd, you know, a lot of these ambitious New York films. And at the end of the first year, she told me I was a born filmmaker. And just her telling me that, you know, somebody that had that level of experience, her telling me that really just gave me so much confidence to just keep on going. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores. And it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Yes. And, um, and you know, it's the love of the medium. You have to love what you do. You've, you've got to love film. I tell young people that want to get into film, I said, no film history. You know, don't just know films that were done from the 90s on. You know, if you love film... You go back and you look at history, just like musicians. I'm always fascinated by what musicians listen to. When you listen to the the music that influenced Prince, you know, the, the music that influenced Michael Jackson when they were coming up and they went back to the classics, you know, and you just have to love it and uh, you have to love the medium and you have to love the medium in all of its forms, you know, not just, not just hip hop, not just R&B, but classical classical jazz, African-American classical music, which is, you know, the old folks, (laughs) some folks like to call them old folks, bebop. You know, I grew up listening to a lot of bebop as a kid, and I still listen to it. Miles Davis, my favorite musician. 
And so, Ernest, you know, I think you're being generous when you say that they're only listening from the 90s. Some of them aren't even watching from the 90s. Well, I think, <laughs> and I think that an underlying thing I want to touch on real here, if you're going to model someone, we talk a lot about modeling excellence. Don't just study the person. Study what they studied. Yeah. Look yeah. at what is it that created them? What were their yeah. influences? If you don't look at that, then you're just looking at the 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 thread of that that they adopted for themselves without actually looking at how how did they do that? You know, it, it's it's you want to be an athlete. Look at the athletes they studied. Look at the way they trained, not just yeah. what they can do yesterday at the game. And that's and that's love of of, of the medium. I remember. What really kind of got me on this this kick was one afternoon, one Sunday afternoon, I was listening to the radio, NPR. It was, it was an interview with Paul McCartney. And I said, what do you listen to when you go home? You know, who do you listen to when you're just, you know, trying to, you know, go into a place where you don't know where you're going to go next, but you're trying to find a way for your creativity to take you. And he named a number of people that were really, really interesting. So, you know, to, you just got to be open to look at whatever is out there. Along with that, who are your favorite filmmakers? Who do you? Who does Ernest Dickerson study? Orson Welles, Alfred Hitchcock, David Lynch, David Lean. I think those are my favorite guys. Mario Bava. Mm. I have a tendency to really Stanley Kubrick. I like people who use the camera as a paintbrush. Did you ever uh, see Mario Bava's first movie that he ghost directed, Kaltiki, the Immortal Monster? I love it. I love, I it. love that movie. movie. I, I grew up with it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Used to watch that every time it came on science fiction theater, you know, on yeah. Saturday afternoon, man. I love that movie. Yeah, it, he took over from Ricardo Freda. And, and you know, there's a lot of controversy about did Freda give it to him to give him a chance to show his chops as a director? But it's it still stands up. It's I you know That's I love scary story. Yeah, it's a genuinely oh, I, nasty movie. Oh, I remember I I first saw it on Million Dollar Movie when I was growing up in New York. Yeah, and that kind of like really gave me a real attitude towards European horror. They were always more gruesome, you know, just what you saw of what was happening to the people as Kaltiki was absorbing them. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That the, the, the guy who'd lost his arm got eaten by that thing. And that was one of the grossest things I had ever seen on television. Yeah. I, loved it. I was hypnotized. Yeah. Yeah. And and Bava directed, photographed and did the visual effects for it. Wonderful. Tananri, so you had a question. Well, I, gosh, I have so many. While we're talking about that, those filmmakers who've inspired you, even what your your mentor in college recognized in you. When you're looking at the composition of a shot, what is there a signature Dickerson approach? Or if you've never thought of it that way, what must you have for a shot to work for you? Well, a shot has to tell story. I, I consider I consider scenes like a paragraph and each shot is a sentence in the paragraph. And that's why I love the term writing with the camera. That's what Hitchcock always said that he did. And that's actually what a lot of the French critics said, that that was Hitchcock's strength, that he wrote with the camera. Each shot is telling you a little piece of the story, you know, and he really believed in what he, what he termed pure cinema, that you should be able to look at a film, turn the sound off and still know what was going on. And, and to me, the filmmakers who use the camera in that way, that each shot or each collection of shots helps to tell part of the story, that to me is beautiful cinematography. Not necessarily, yeah, beautiful lighting, okay. You know, you can light something beautifully, okay, that's easy. You know, a lot of time, but a lot of times what people consider beautiful cinematography is actually production design and, 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 and costume design. But when you have shots that tell the story, that each one is a way of really focusing you in there. Uh, Martin Scorsese was a was a major influence on Spike and me in film school. Raging Bull, when we saw Raging Bull, that blew us away. And that really kind of pointed the way to how we were going to treat the camera and, and all the stuff that we did. Can you think of a particular shot that... In, in a Scorsese film or a, a film by another filmmaker that you admire and kind of walk us through what it is that you're seeing there. And then I'd really, really love for you to talk about some particular shot 
in one of your movies and what we should look for and why you chose it? Well, let me see. I have been, I recently rewatched Alfred Hitchcock's Notorious, which is a movie he did in the mid 1940s with Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman. Yes. And I think this was the first time that Hitchcock actually started writing with the camera. And to show, there's a very famous crane shot that he did that could have been done just as a cut. It's, it's showing that Ingrid Bergman having this party in her house, in her husband's house, she has sneaked a key to a room in the house that she was always forbidden for, from entering. And so it starts out as a, as a high wide shot of the entire room and you see Ingrid Bergman down there entertaining guests. But instead of cutting from the wide shot down into the fact that she's hot, had, has the key in her hand, the camera moves down. And it really sets up the milieu, you know, in the middle of all these people and all that's going on, you go in and you go right in on the key. Got and, it. Uh, on the and page, the script for that, the, the writer doesn't design shots like that. The writer just says, you know, sort of go to go to medium shot or close shot on the key in her hand. Or would do you think, you know, I've always been told don't direct the movie. So, yeah. you know, what what do you think it said in the script? Well, Hitchcock always started working with his writers. You know, they might do the, the initial draft of the script, but he started working with his writers and starting to put that stuff in the eventual screenplay. But a lot of times, screenplays that I get, you know, scripts that I get, they don't have that kind of information on it. And so what I do, I do my own visual script. I do my own storyboards. I, and I grew up writing drawing and I have a, undergraduate degree in architecture. So drawing and planning stuff out is something that I'm used to doing. Great. So I do a visual script, but Hitchcock always did a visual script himself in the script. And then he went from there to storyboards. But this is because, you know, he had a chance to actually sit down in the room with his writers to actually get the final part of the script because he was starting it from the very beginning. He bought the material, bought the original material, hired the writer, and other stuff. But I mean, I was reading an article the other day how uh, the original and, and the movie Strangers on a Train, Raymond Chandler was the original scriptwriter of that. But he couldn't, Hitchcock couldn't use because he said Chandler just had a very hard time thinking visually. And so he brought somebody else in to adapt the script and then start working it into a more visual telling the story through the pictures. So that happens a lot. You know, you have writers that don't think visually think our right. dialogue but it's up to a visual director and not all directors are visual there's some direct every director has their own strengths that's, that's direct- one of the reasons i definitely do encourage pro students uh, our pro students in our life writing premium course study screenwriting even if you don't think you want to be a screenwriter just so you can learn how to think more visually a it'll help your story become more visual but b in this day and age, when people tap you on the shoulder and give you an opportunity, you want to be ready for it. I don't want you to forget, though, the second part of Steve's question, because I want to, what's the Dickerson shot? shot? yours in a movie. Yeah. If, our, if our listeners want to go out and experience Ernest Dickerson, what of your work would you say is something that, yeah, you know, this this is me. This, this is some, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with the way that came out. And here's a particular reason. Why. I got to really think of that. Yikes. <laughs> oh my gosh. This man, by the uh, way, has worked on so many classic films while he's thinking about it. <laughs> Let me give it here. Here are some of your, here are some of your choices. I guess it could be as a director or a cinematographer. Cause you've done, you do both. And there've been so many, I mean, okay, we could do, do the right well, thing. I, school days. Well, I can draw, use she's got to have it. <laughs> I'll, I'll, think, I'll think of me as a director. Um, okay. Uh, something I've always been proud of is the second season finale of The Walking Dead, Ooh. which which was a huge undertaking. And uh, when the script basically talks about how there are thousands of zombies moving in, that's all it tells you. I have to I have to figure out the shot. How am I going to reveal those thousands of zombies, knowing that I'm probably only going to have about a hundred people as extras back there dressed up as zombies, knowing that a lot of it's going to have to be CGI enhanced. So. I storyboarded the whole thing. You know, I just storyboarded the whole thing. 
But also in that same episode, there's there's a scene where Andrew Lincoln's character tells his wife how he killed Shane, how Shane turned and and how it was his son that did it and uh, and it was a long it was a long speech and I was just trying to figure out how am I going to do this without cutting it up into shots because I like long takes and I think a lot of actors like long takes because it gives them a chance to maybe go into theater. And so I just working it out and staging it with the actors. I had it so that Andrew is looking past the camera and his wife comes up and she's hugging him from behind. And then as he's telling her, he doesn't look at her, but as he's telling her, we see both their faces and the one long take. And, and I just took the chance. I didn't do any coverage on it you know, which meant that it had to play just as that one shot until it breaks up later on. I think it's like a, maybe a two or three minute take. And I, and I love challenges like that because you can put everything into one. And of course, if, if you do that, you know, if you, if you do like a four minute take, first minute, you're okay. Second minute, all right, I hope nothing screws up. Third minute, please, nothing better screw up because if you get it three and a half minutes, and something gets ruined, then you got to go back to the beginning and start it all over again, you know, right. because you don't give yourself the coverage to cut away to save it. But, you know, another one of my favorite filmmakers was Sam Fuller. He did that a lot, you know, that, you know, just the energy you get from doing that. So those are two things I could think of. The, the, the great shot that we had of the barn burning and falling down. Mm. Something I storyboarded. But it was, you know, when we set up that effect, you know, we, we had, uh, you know, the, the special effects guy was, I always called him Uncle Daryl because he was, he was such, such a cool guy. But I knew that once we got that burn going, we would only have about 10 minutes before the whole structure collapsed. So I had all my six cameras placed so that they had all the zombies in front of them. And as the zombies came towards them, I kept saying, as they come towards you, just widen out, but keep that barn in the background and kept widening up. You know, each camera was on a zoom lens and keep widening up. And the first take, they came through. And then I said, okay, set for take two. They went back, started up. They're going through. Me and my first AD are watching it on a monitor. And the barn is burning. And we noticed the first couple of timbers going down. So, oh, my God, it's going to collapse. Everybody, go back to the beginning. Go back to the beginning. <laughs> you know, and like ran back. And this is like, it was like 11 degrees. Atlanta gets cold in the winter, you know, in November. This was like 11 degrees Fahrenheit. What? And so they started, they started back at the beginning and they started their move forward and the cameras just did what they did before. And right in the middle of it, everything came falling down. Nice. Well, there's nobody who saw that that episode. The little girl uh, was revealed. Yes. That's the one. Oh, that, that was, that was mid season. That was mid season. Oh, mid season. Yeah. That was, and this was this was the far, the season finale. Got it. And I and I'll never forget. We shot that, and then I mean that was the very last night of shooting, and we went all the way till the morning. You know, we went until sunrise, up until around ten a.m., and then uh, that was it. And I went home for Thanksgiving. <laughs> so I'll never forget. It was like November twenty first. Wow. And I left November twenty second. But but yeah, the little girl. What happened was that. You know, the, the the time in the Walking Dead shows is like a matter of days, a couple of weeks. So from season one to season two, it was only supposed to be like about a week or so in the time frame from season one to season two. By that time, she shot up. She had a growth spurt. Mm. So, so she started out as four foot something. And they said, you know, she's like five foot something. You know, <laughs> that's, why, that's why they had to kill her off. Oh. What? Oh, that's why they had to kill her. Oh, yeah. all the secrets coming out. Okay. She's on Bosch. She plays Bosch's daughter, and she's and she's really grown as an actress. That's why you know I'm really proud because I've had a chance to be part of her growing up. You know, because I did the episode where her character gets lost in the second season, but then a couple of years later working as Bosch's daughter, and I've seen her grow up in that, and now she's part of the LAPD in the show. So, uh, you know, yeah, Madison has really grown up. Uh, I I would love to take you back to the beginning of your directing 
career. I think it's the very beginning because we have an intersection there. The movie Juice. Mm. Okay. 1992. Tupac debut in film. Omar Epps, great cast. O'Kane was in it. Also Samuel L. Jackson, Queen Latifah. And I, I don't know if I've ever told you this story, but my intersection with this is that I was a reporter for the Miami Herald. And this was assigned to be my very first movie review. Right. Oh, wow. Okay. And also wow. As, as a part of the publicity, they sent the cast out. So I got to interview Omar Epps and he's lovely, but you know, of course I'm thinking, ah, if only it could have been Tupac, but you know, that's neither here nor there. And I loved it so much, Ernest. I loved it. I gave it three out of four stars. I wanted to give it more, but as a new movie reviewer for this publication, I felt like I wasn't going to be able to sell three and a half for four stars. And I have to admit, even at three stars, I feel like my editor looked at me kind of cockeyed because of assumptions they might've made about what this film was and what it wasn't. Well, I, I feel vindicated in your career that I, I was not only right to give it the three stars, but I should have given it more. So that's my juice story. We had a four is okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, within the realm of any human life, there are going to be moments that are extreme highs and extreme lows. And some of those highs and lows are not things you want to talk about on a podcast, but out of the things that have been extraordinarily good or bad, can you share a story with us? You know, one from from each. Yeah, like like one where you're like, oh, I don't know if I'm I'm cut out for this world, <laughs> or even uh, this business, and then the one where you're like, I've made it. Well, questioning whether or not I'm cut out for this business that usually hits me in the morning when I get up. That usually hits me like four thirty, five o'clock in the morning. From the bed to the shower. After I get out the shower, I'm fine. <laughs> you know, but, but you know, part of me would love to just be able to stay in bed. You know, you know, my, you know, when you go on a film set, especially as a director, excuse my French, but you know, shit is gonna happen. That's the one. That's that's the crazy thing about directing is that you go in and you don't know what you're gonna be confronted with during that day. You know, people are gonna be coming to you. You're probably gonna be trying to solve couple of hundred problems people are going to be bombarding you and and you know you don't know what's going to happen you don't anticipate what's going to happen you know i did a movie years ago with the dmx called never die alone right and you know really really such a, an interesting guy because you know d would come in and wouldn't know what we were doing you know what are we going to do today he'd come out of makeup and he had everything committed to memory i think he had a i think he had a photographic memory yeah. And it was really amazing, but but there was one moment that we actually were able to capture on video. And it's a whole thing where you wonder what musicians listen to. Remember, you know, the thing I talked about, what artists listen to? And we were setting up a shot, and Dee's just walking through the set, and he started singing to himself, there I go, there I go, there I go, there I go, pretty baby, you are the soul who snaps my control, which is Moody's Mood for Love. By, you know, by James Moody. And I remember it was my father's favorite song. You know, it was sung by a guy named King Pleasure. And I first got hip to it living in New York because there was a, a, a DJ named Frankie Crocker on WWRL. And that was his sign-off song every night, every night on the radio. And it was just, and I bought the record and it just, you know, it's like this relatively obscure jazz classic and the fact that d was singing it to himself and then i jumped in and joined in and so we got video of me and dmx singing moody's mood for love and you know it was just you know one of those great moments that yeah, you look for moments like that in your life yeah yeah and it's, and what's really amazing is that i knew somebody had recorded it and i didn't know who but my wife found it and she gave it to me for my birthday <laughs> just a couple of months ago. So Aww. now I have it. You know, it's like one of the best birthday gifts I could have ever gotten because it was just it's that great moment. And hey, um, it, it does, does a moment like that compensate for a lot of disappointments? I mean, when you have a moment that is magical, like that, in the midst of the chaos and the business, there's a personal 
moment, a connection. That's the kind of thing that I think makes life worthwhile. I, and I, I've noticed that people who've managed to succeed, especially in the artistic field, but probably everywhere, they look for things that are worth it. Mm-hmm. They, they look for things that this justifies all the crap that I go through. And I think that being able to find those things and store them in our hearts are part of what keep us going. So I, I wanted to thank you very much for sharing that with us. Yes. Uh, it, it, it's, you know, one of those great moments, but it also gave me so much insight into the brother's character, you know, and, you know, I, I wish I'd had more time to spend with him to find out, yo, man, when did you start listening to, when did you first hear Moody's Mood for Love? Because it's a great song. And, uh, you know, was it his parents, you know, or, or where did he get it from? Did he get it from the same place I did on the radio? But uh, you just never know. You, you don't know what people listen to when they're coming up that does eventually fuel what they do. So right. you, you've talked a little bit about some of your your fights in the industry. One in Horror Noir. You talked a little bit about the fight to get Jada Pinkett Smith in Demon Knight. And then we had a conversation about one of my favorite movies, Surviving the Game, which which you had to fight for Ice-T and that. Would you talk a little bit about some of your fights and why you fight? Well, you know, I, I, I kind of said that, you know, Juice was a little bit of a, I can't say a wonder, but, you know, I'm, I don't consider myself a writer professionally. I've, I've written because there were certain films that I wanted to make and I started writing because nobody else did it. And I just don't have the facilities to hire a writer to do it, you know, a lot, you know. So, you know, we, we wrote Juice. You know, we were trying to, my friend Gerard and I, we were trying to, you know, debut ourselves as a writer-director team. But at that time, nobody wanted to touch it. So it it sat, I think we first wrote Juice in like 80, 82, 81 or 82, as I was getting out of NYU film school. And I had a young daughter and, and I was only intermittently working, shooting music videos and public relations films for the Archdiocese of Brooklyn. So in, in that time, I wrote Juice. And it was kind of like really based on stuff that I had been wanting to write for a long time. Uh, I, a book I've always wanted to adapt for the screen is Manchild in a Promised Land, Claude Brown's Manchild in a Promised Land. Because yes. I read it, it was required reading for me when I was a freshman in high school at Escapit High in Newark, New Jersey. You know, all us, all us young black intellectuals, <laughs> you know, you know, that was one of the books we had to read that, you know, the autobiography of Malcolm X, Franz Fanon, the rest of the earth, you know, black skin, white masks, all those books we had to read. And, and, and Manchild, you know, I loved it because it was, it was a lot of it that I saw in my growing up in Newark, how Newark, New Jersey, how when I left the house, my mother never knew any of the stuff I was getting into. And, and, you know, when I was in Washington, D.C., I had a summer job working at the post office. I would always be on the bus around 5.30 in the morning. And sometimes I would see these kids on the bus that looked like they've been hanging out all night long. I just wondered what kind of adventures had they been getting into? I said, there's a movie there. And so that was something I kept with me for a long time until I finally decided to, to try and do that as juice, which in a way was my inability to get the right to Manchild in a Promised Land. <laughs> work around it. Work around I, it. I would love to hear a story that you have not told about producing Surviving the Game. What have you never said about that process before? Oh, wow. Well, well, you know, the thing about it, I I didn't know that Surviving the Game was, it was a multi-picture deal between Bob Shea at New Line and David Permit. And I don't know how this happened, but apparently they started out as best of friends. But at some point, their relationship got really soured. And I wanted to survive in the game because I was looking for a thriller script after coming out of Juice. And the first one I read that really got me interested was script for seven. Mm. Mm. Of course. Yeah, that went to Fincher, yeah. though, right? didn't it? And yeah, that, that eventually did go to Fincher. But when I got it, my agent told me that 
you know, they don't know what to do with this. The producers don't know what to do with this. They're scared of this script. And so I read it, you know, and I started thinking about how to do it, you know, and I was thinking, you know, the the producers were afraid that it was too gory and too bloody and everything. And, and I was thinking, you know, it, it'd be really cool to do it in such a way that you never really see the blood, you never see the gore, but it's suggested. You know, just as a body bag is or, or being ready to be opened up to see something gory, you cut away from it. Mm-hmm. The old the old Val Luton is that gives the audience enough to for them to imagine what's in there, but don't show it to them because what they can imagine will be much more horrible than anything you can show. And so, you know, I I had my pitch and I went in and and I thought I did a good job. But then my agent told me I talked my way out of a job. I said, how did I do that? She said, she said, before you went there, they were ready to just throw the script away. I said, nobody, you should, she said, you told them how to make the movie. So they said, we can get, a, we can get an A-list director, get an A-list people to do this. And that's what happened. I told them how to make the movie, but they wanted what they considered an A-list director. And, you know, Fincher had already had Alien 3 under his belt, which didn't do well, but I guess it was enough, and the music videos that he was doing. So, so that's how that happened. And and by the way, for surviving the game, people don't might not know that story or versions of that story have been retold many many times. Radio dramas, the most dangerous, basically hunting humans, and and how that comes about. Yeah. Well, I didn't get well since I didn't get seven. I was moving to a new agent, and and they gave me surviving the game, and so I audition for that. I know the original actor they wanted to get for the Mason role was a Charlie Sheen. And, and I actually suggested Lawrence Fishburne at first. Deep Cover had just come out, which is a brilliant movie, but mm. it didn't do it, it didn't do well. And they were blaming it on, on, La- on Lawrence. And so they said the only actor that we would consider would be Ice-T. And uh, I had just seen Ice-T in Trespass. And I said, yeah, he could do it. Because I was determined it wasn't it wasn't written specifically for race, but that's one of the things that I was going to try and do as a director that 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 roles that weren't weren't written for race. I was going to try and get some black folks in there, and so we were able to do it with with Ice T, and I got Ice. You know, really had some great talks with him, and he was down for doing it. And then I started putting the cast together, and I did not know that the relationships between permit presentations and New Line had really gotten to the point where they were dogging each other in the press every single day. Because I very seldom read industry press. <laughs> Even to this day, I still don't read it that much. I got more important things to read. And, uh, and so I was able to get Rutger Hauer, F. Murray Abraham, mm. Gary Busey, right. Gary Busey. Oh, that had, to be, that had to be entertaining. <laughs> what a cast. <laughs> Yeah, oh, I, oh, crazy Gary Busey stories. But I got a great one about him. But but let me finish this. But what happened was that I put together such a great cast that they actually pre-sold the film overseas before we even went to camera. Wow. So before we went to camera, the movie had already made its money back. And so Bob Shea was not going to help David Permit have a, a hit. He said, he got, I got my money back. So, you know, we just let it play. You know what I'm saying? Mm. He had already made their money back. They didn't have to put it in the theaters to make the money back. Based on the cast, they had already pre-sold the film in a lot of different markets. And so as a result, they didn't really do much advertising for the film. They didn't push the film. The crazy thing about it was that Bob Shea came in to see my cut. And everybody warned me, watch out. He never likes director's first cuts. I showed him my first cut. He said, I like this. It's good. Walked out. But he was, there was that bad blood between the two companies. Oh, I love that movie so much. Talking about it makes me want to watch it right now. <laughs> well, let, let's, let's get that Gary Busey story real quick. If you, if, if you want to share it. <laughs> Gary was, he was quite a character. And, and uh, when I had a chance to work with the writer after I got the job and uh, one of my favorite scenes in film has always been the Indianapolis scene in Jaws. I love that scene. It always sends Wonderful chills over my spine, just the way Robert Shaw said that. 
And, and we had this dinner scene where Gary Busey's character explains his whole, why he hunts people down, how he got into this mindset. And the writer actually based it on a story, a true story he had read about a little boy that grew up in the Aryan nations up in Idaho. How his father who was a white supremacist. He raised him with this dog and the kid loved the dog. Oh, the dog. Then one day the dog, then one day the dog disappeared and the little boy did not know where he was. And then the father said, today I'm going to make you a man. Come with me. And he took him out to the woods and there was a shed and inside the shed, the little boy could just hear his dog barking and growling. He said, your dog has been in there for the past several days. He's starving. He'll attack anything that comes in there. He says, today I'm going to make you a man. I'm going to put you in there with that dog. I only want to see one of you coming out, coming out of there alive. Terrible. And he put him in there and the little boy had to. And, and so this was when I told Gary Busey about this, he kind of like laughed a little bit. He said, that story is crazy. <laughs> and, and, he said, and he's like, but how do I play a scene like that? You know, is it, is it funny? Is it supposed to be a comedy? And I said, and, and I, said, what? I said, no, I said, no, Gary, Gary, it's the story that this white supremacist father told his son when he was growing up. And he said, really? I said, yeah. Yeah, it's not funny, Gary. Ernest really watered my garden. <laughs> and so yeah. I watered his garden. And, wow. and he, became, he became obsessed with that scene. Before, a couple of times, you know, when a couple of times when we were shooting, we shot the, the dinner scene in several days in the cabin. And a couple of times, 4 a.m., my hotel phone rings and it's Gary who's up. You know, it's like, Ernest. Uh, what if I say it like this? You know, <laughs> he's like, "Are what? you kidding? Holy oh, cow. oh my god! Oh my god! Okay, okay. Well, he named the dog Prince Henry Stout because that was a dog. But what was really interesting is that Gary gave—he was able to connect to it on a level because he grew up on a farm, and he said they had a dog that was an old dog." old female dog who had puppies, but she didn't have milk to feed the dogs, to feed the puppies. And so he had to kill each and every one of those puppies because they weren't able to have the milk. And so he put that into it too, which is, mm. which is really, yeah, I know, really crazy. Mm. But, but, but for the next couple of years, whenever I ran into Gary Busey, he would always come over to me and say, man, I love that Prince Henry Stout, man. I think about him every day. So he really- <laughs> Every day. He really, well, from the crazy to how do you find the center of peace in your life, given the fact that there are crazinesses that bombard you? How do you how do you renew yourself, refresh yourself? How do you keep finding the part of yourself that is alive and, and eager and optimistic and creative? Yeah, you mentioned that 4.30 a.m., like, what am I doing with my life? And then by the time you get in the shower, you're okay. But are there are there steps that you take to create balance in your life? Well, well, having a great life partner has a lot to do with it. You know, hey. my, my wife is one of the most amazing persons I've ever met. It took me a long time to meet her. I finally met her on Bones. She's my third wife, but she's my last. She's the... You know, they always say the first love of your life is the greatest. I think the last love of your life is the greatest. And this is definitely, Rose is, you know, she's my partner. She understands me. She gets me. And that's what we understood about each other. We, we were friends for years before we became romantically entangled because she got me and I got her, you know, which, you know, which, which just, I never had to answer questions about my motivations while doing certain projects, you know. So it was, you know, she helps a lot. And, so there are, and your home, your nest renews you. Do you have rituals, yeah. eight nights, oh. things, you know, rituals that you do with your wife to keep, you know, if, if, if this is one of the most important, if not the most important relationship in your life, then how do you honor it and sustain it? We just enjoy each other's company. We say that every night in our house is kind of like, you know, a, a little pajama party, you know, sometimes we'll sit up late at night. And, and and watch watch a movie or something and uh, and she's just my best friend. She's what is your favorite you know, movie to watch together? Oh well, she loves Notorious. You know Hitchcock's Notorious because it's 
this is a, it's a pretty heavy film. So that's one movie we like to look at. We like to look at Airplane. Oh, my <laughs> God. Funniest movie ever made. Classic. You know, we still crack up on that. Gosh, you know, her favorite, one of her very favorite films is definitely The Godfather. So, you know, we can look at that often. You know, we, we, we really kind of like uh, binge The Offer. Because, you know, we, we're both Godfather fans. And so, All right. The story of the, that, of the Godfather. Yeah. Seeing that and, and yeah, you know, all the, the Godfather references, you know, we got it all, you know. And, and Sid and Nancy, you know. Sid Vicious? Was that about Sid Vicious? Yeah. Sex Pistols? Yeah. yeah, because their relationship was so crazy. You know, there was, uh, you, you got to see it. Sid! Y'all saw the well drugs and you didn't leave me none you know i mean like (laughs) it's so great so yeah some of those films like that sometimes you like to look at my films but i i normally don't watch Mm. my occasionally i'll be flipping channels and i'll see a film that i shot and i'll sit and watch it you know but uh, you know we you know my kids are still close i have five kids you know three boys two girls the girls separated by distance. My oldest daughter lives in New Jersey. My youngest daughter lives in, in outside Houston, Texas. They've both given me grandchildren, so now I have three grandchildren. Aww. Uh, nice. My nice. boy, one of my youngest son, he lives up in Iowa. He's That's where he went to school, so he's living up there. But uh, my sons, EJ and, and Eli, they Eli lives, still lives here with us. And and he was, he's got into the business. He's been, he actually worked for a couple of years on Picard. Oh, cool. and apparently he and, he and Patrick Stewart became tight buddies, <clears throat> which is really cool to hear. Very good and thing, my old, Patrick Stewart. And my oldest son EJ has been working as a an AC. Once he got into the union as an AC, he's been working steadily. So uh, and, great. Uh, yeah. So family so, yeah. is your refuge. Your home is is your fortress. Yeah, we got a great backyard. You know, we like to just sit in the backyard. I like to sit in the backyard at night. You know. Maybe smoke a cigar, you know. And uh, unfortunately, I've gotten my wife on that habit too. <laughs> so, oh no! I thought she was going to be on you about it, and instead, you're saying she's doing it too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. But, Wonderful. Um, oh, you know, I. What is it that you would like to say to a young person who is interested in being a first? Do you know why you want to be a director? Is it, I mean, I, I I find that some people get into the business for the wrong reason sometimes, you know. A lot of, I've heard people say they think it's a great way to become famous. But if you're going to be a director, you got to love film. Yes. But yeah, the glamour is, 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 is played up a lot, but the glamour only happens once, and that's usually at the premiere of the film. Yeah, I've heard it said that you need to know what it is you want to do, but yeah. more importantly is why do you want to do it? What I've heard is that you need to be really clear on what you want and why you want it. And if your whys are strong enough, then you'll then the rest of it is just details. You'll figure it out. And I think that's a that's a perfect solution and not a bad transition to, to our us, life writing premium about course. What it is that we're trying to do for young writers, which is to take everything that we're learning and everything that we're learning from people like you who have been kind and generous with your experience and boil it down into a 52-week program where every week you get another lesson. And if you are willing to write at least one sentence a day and watch one video a week, we can get you along that path. T. Life Writing Premium is a subscription service. So it's one module that you get per week and you can do as little or as much as you have time to do. The minimum buy-in is a sentence a day. And yes, I'm going to watch this short, maybe five-minute video, but there's a whole lot more stuff if you can dig in. And videos whether you and are- lectures and audios. Audio, and video, lectures, PDFs. Oh, it, it's, it's exactly what I wish somebody had given me when I was 16, really, just to have a sense of, of what's out there. And Tanana even I, we we love this business. We love writing. And this business is is a game that we are playing the best that we can. And so we're going to supply you with the strategies and tactics to get to finish your work, publish your work, and then to give yourself the best chance of being noticed 
so you can build the career that you want. But I would suggest that you start with what Ernest said. Once you clarify what you want, be really clear on why you want it. Because there are going to be bad times as well as good times. You're going to need a reason to get out of bed in the morning and keep going. And whether you're unpublished, unproduced, just starting out, maybe you've already published, maybe you've had some work produced. It's it's also great just to have that weekly motivation. Those modules coming in, new ways to think about things that you might want to do differently. So check it out. It's only $29 a month. You can quit anytime, but hopefully you'll stay and, and keep up with the lessons at www.lifewritingpremium.com, which you hear every time you hear this podcast. That's right. So Ernest, thank you so much. Is there any last thing that you would like to offer the world on this podcast? Just thank you so much for giving us your time and, and, and honesty. You know, I, I just think it's for young filmmakers, the, the best the only way you're going to really learn film is to do it. I mean, you got to look at, you have to study film for sure, but a lot of it is problem solving. It's thinking on the feet. It's, and, and a lot of times there are problems you can't anticipate, you know, but now with digital being as pervasive as it is, it's, I think it's, in many ways it's easier to make a film now than it ever has been for independent filmmakers. Now getting it out there for the world to see it, that's a whole nother thing. But, you know, the idea that people can shoot on their cell phones, I mean. Yeah. I know some people who've made, who have very modest resources who have have several different feature-length films on Tubi. They found Mm -hmm. a streaming platform to get it out on YouTube. You know, they're getting it out there and they're trying to get notice. You know, they're showing their chops. They're they're gaining experience. They're working with people. And they're making movies. They're doing this thing that they love. You know, and people, real human beings get to see their work. And, and God, knowing that somebody saw what you did, whether it's a story or a book or an episode of a show or a movie, that's art, is, is, is knowing that an audience felt something when they saw <laughs> your images or heard your words. Well, and, and thank you so much, Ernest Dickerson. You are very modest, but you are one of the top prestige directors especially in television where you've been doing every show but as far as i'm concerned period working in this business so thank you so much for coming on to the life writing podcast having me yes glad you could pleasure and we will see you around halloween i would guess yes maybe we'll see (laughs) our our virtual halloween party but thanks so much for being on the show okay thank you gotta figure out our costume but that'll be fun there you go You've been listening to the Life Writing Podcast. Join us next time for more conversations about creating the project of your dreams. For more information, go to lifewritingpremium.com and get ready to write for your life. What if you discovered you could move between the worlds of dreams and real life? That's the story of Dream Breachers, where Evan wakes up on his 12th birthday and realizes that something he dreamt about the night before had actually happened. With the help of his friends, a reappearing stranger, and a mysterious organization called the Dream Academy, Evan will discover what it means to be a dream breacher. Dream Breachers is a high-stakes sci-fi mystery adventure about the highs and lows of having all your dreams come true and is perfect for kids ages 8 to 12. If that sounds like a dream to you, you're in luck. You can listen to Dream Breachers now, wherever you get your podcasts.